0: If Jesus of Nazareth were to return to the earth today, would He recognize the religion that is using His name? So asked Dr. Roderick C. Meredith at the beginning of his insightful thesis, Restoring Original Christianity. And the only answer any truly informed person can give is an undeniable, indisputable, unequivocal, no he would not. Dr. Meredith continues, Mankind has twisted Jesus Christ's teaching so that the religion bearing His name has practically no relationship to what He and the Apostles actually lived and believed. But does the average churchgoer understand this? Does he even care? What about you? As shocking as it may be, the church Jesus founded is nothing like the many churches calling themselves by His name, and this is both a biblical and an historic fact. Note this statement by church historian Jesse Lyman Hurlbut about how rapidly first century Christianity morphed into something very different. For 50 years after St. Paul's life, a curtain hangs over the church through which we strive vainly to look. And when at last it rises about 120 AD with the writings of the earliest church fathers, we find a church in many aspects very different from that in the days of St. Peter and St. Paul. These changes didn't stop, but continued to the point where the Church was not only in many aspects very different, but truly unrecognizable. Hurlbut describes some of the changes that crept in over the next several centuries. The forms and ceremonies of paganism gradually crept into the worship. Some of the old heathen feasts became church festivals with change of name and of worship. About 405 AD, images of saints and martyrs began to appear in the churches, at first as memorials, then in succession revered, adored, and worshiped. The adoration of the Virgin Mary was substituted for the worship of Venus and Diana. The Lord's Supper became a sacrifice in place of a memorial and the elder evolved from a preacher into a priest. Does any of this matter to you? It should! And if you'd like to discover why it should matter to you, stay tuned! Welcome to all of you from those of us here at Tomorrow's World and the Living Church of God, the sponsor of this program. Today's program is not for the faint-hearted, because what you're going to hear is dangerous knowledge. It's dangerous because if true, which it is, it demands a response on your part to make a decision. God holds you responsible for what you do with what you know, and to do nothing is a decision. Christianity today is a far cry from that of Christ and His Apostles. In fact, it is more than a far cry. It is a totally different religion. Now if that sounds shocking, give me the chance to prove it right from the pages of your own Bible. There are so many differences that we don't have time to begin to cover them all, but here are three doctrines Jesus and His Apostles taught that are rejected, reasoned around, substituted for, and argued against. Number 1. Jesus and His Apostles kept the law of God. Consider, why is it that some professing Christians will fight to preserve the Ten Commandments that are chiseled in granite on government monuments, but when engaged in a biblical discussion on the subject will maintain that Christ nailed them to the cross and that these same laws no longer need to be kept? Now let me give you the dirty little secret as to why this is. In general, people rightfully understand that behavior matters. Ask any professing Christian, is it okay to dishonor your parents, murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet? Is it okay for a Christian to have another God besides the God of the Bible, to worship idols, or use God's name disrespectfully? Picture Ten Commandment plaques found in churches, carved into stone monuments, or hanging on the wall of a neighbor's house. Maybe you have one in your own home, perhaps looking like a replica of the original two tablets that Moses carried down the mountain. For most, nine of the ten are good, and we certainly want our neighbors to keep them, but suggest that the fourth commandment should be kept and suddenly they'll argue that the law is done away and accuse you of trying to save yourself by your works. Yet, for some reason, if you try to keep any of the other commandments, you're not trying to save yourself by your works. How can this be? The reasoning goes something like this. Jesus nailed the Old Testament law, including the Ten Commandments, to the cross. He then gave us what is called the law of Christ, Which it is reasoned with no proof contains all of the ten except one. So you do away with ten, resurrect nine under a new term, all to get rid of one. In effect, they are saying that God made a mistake when He gave us ten, and He sent His Son to correct that mistake. But is that what the Bible says? Is that what Jesus and the New Testament apostles and writers believed and taught? In Matthew the 19th chapter in verse 16, we read of a young man who came to Jesus and asked him a very important question. Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now wouldn't we all like to know the answer to that question? Many are familiar with the end of this account but fail to see what's in the middle. Was Jesus' answer consistent with what professing Christianity teaches? Dust off your Bible and read it for yourself. Jesus replied in Matthew 19 17, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then, in response to his question of which ones, Jesus listed several of the ten. He focused on the last six that teach us how to love our neighbor. He didn't mention any of the first four that teach us how to love God, at least not yet. There was something that was bothering this young man in spite of the fact that he was keeping these commandments. He therefore continued, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Remember his original question, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He kept the commandments, at least he thought he did, but he knew something was missing in his life and he wanted to know what single thing or single act could he perform that would ensure eternal life. Many carelessly believe that Jesus gave him a new commandment, but this isn't so. Instead, Jesus gave him that one act that he requested, and in Jesus' answer he took aim at this man's false god, trusting in his wealth, a violation of the first commandment. And his covetous attitude, a violation of the 10th commandment. Notice verses 21 and 22. If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful,
1: for he had great possessions. To learn more about today's topic, Visit www.twcanada.org to read or order your free copy of Restoring Original Christianity. You can also order by calling us at 1-866-784-7895. You will also receive a free subscription to Tomorrow's World magazine. Call 1-866-784-7895.
0: In spite of Jesus' clear command to keep the commandments, some still reason that we don't have to keep them. They reason that this incident took place before Jesus' crucifixion, and therefore it was the right thing to do at the time, but not after Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. However, Jesus challenges those who call him Lord or Master, but don't do what he says. Notice that Jesus condemns those who rebelliously reason around his clear statements. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Luke, the sixth chapter, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? But what about Jesus' apostles? Did they teach the necessity of keeping the law of God? Now, please note that I'm not talking about the sacrifices and rituals, but laws defining right behavior. The Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love, and many believe that law and love don't go together, and how wrong they are. In John's first epistle, he powerfully promotes both love and law. Notice this passage beginning in chapter 2 and verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Some years ago, a young man approached me at one of our Tomorrow's World presentations, and he explained to me that his minister told him that the law of God is a burden that we don't have to keep. That Christ had set us free from it. So I read to him from 1 John, the fifth chapter. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. He then asked me what he should do. My response was very simple. His minister said the commandments are burdensome. The Apostle John said they are not. He could listen to his minister, or he could listen to the Apostle John. He had a decision to make. But what about the Apostle Paul? Didn't he tell us we don't have to keep the law? Now in all honesty, this can be a complicated subject. At times Paul seems to be speaking against the law, but then he writes such statements as 1 Corinthians the seventh chapter, and verse 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Romans the 7th chapter verse 12. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. And Romans 6 verse 15. What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. A major theme in the book of Romans is justification, meaning how sin is forgiven. Paul explains that our current or future law-keeping can never pay the penalty for past transgressions. Forgiveness of past sins can only occur through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What then is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul explains in Romans the seventh chapter and verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, "You shall not covet." Once we understand this, Paul's question and answer in Romans the third chapter and verse 31 makes perfect sense. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. As the New Bible Commentary Revised tells us, the false teachers seem to have held that knowledge is all-important and that conduct doesn't matter. So John insists that sin is evidence of wrong relationship to God. Sin, he tells us, is lawlessness, the Greek construction implying that the two are interchangeable. The law in question is, of course, the law of God. The essence of sin, then, is disregard for God's law. It is the assertion of oneself against God's revealed way for mankind. It is a preference for
1: selfishness over service of God. To learn more about today's topic, visit www.twcanada.org to read or order your free copy of restoring original christianity you can also order by calling us at 1866 784 7895 you will also receive a free subscription to tomorrow's world magazine call 1866 784 7895 Write or visit us online today
0: so far we've briefly looked at how jesus and the apostles taught obedience to the law of god Now, with that background, we can now look at one of those laws that separates modern professing Christianity from Christ. Number two, Jesus and his apostles kept the seventh day Sabbath. The fourth of the Ten Commandments tells us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It goes on to explain that the Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week. Yet most professing Christians observe the first day of the week. Why? After more than 45 years in the ministry, I doubt that anyone could come up with an argument that I haven't heard many times over. I don't have time to address all of them at this time, but here is an example of clever but faulty reasoning. Many claim that we keep Sunday because it is the New Testament Lord's Day. Now that term is used in some translations of Revelation 1, verse 10, but it has nothing to do with a day of the week. However, let's assume for a moment that the term Lord's Day does refer to a day of the week. So, according to the Bible, what day would that be? In Mark chapter 2, we read how the Pharisees wrongly accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus explained that they misunderstood the purpose of the Sabbath, that it was given to benefit man. We read in verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Notice that he didn't say the Sabbath was done away, nor that it was made for the Jews only. Jesus tells us it was made for man. But when was that? Genesis 2, beginning verse 2. And on the seventh day God entered his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So we see that God put his very presence in the day by resting. We also see that he sanctified it, that is, God set it apart for a holy purpose. Now, going back to Mark the second chapter and verse 28, remember it says, Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Here we have it, Jesus calls Himself Lord of the Sabbath. The fact is there is only one day that Jesus is called the Lord of, the day the Bible refers to as the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. So how did the first day of the week become the Christian day of rest? One of my favorite books is Erdman's Handbook to the History of the Christian Church. It's a favorite because it's mainstream, and written by a variety of highly respected scholars. It's written from a modern Christian perspective, but lays out the story of the Christian Church as it progressed down through the centuries. Regarding the historical record of how Sunday came to be the Day of Rest, we find this insightful admission. When in 321 Constantine made the first day of the week a holiday, he called it the Venerable Day of the Sun, Sunday. When the pagan symbols eventually disappeared, the unconquered son was the last to go. The biblical record shows that Christ and the apostles kept the seventh day Sabbath. Jesus kept it, Luke, the fourth chapter, and verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The Apostle Paul kept it with both Jews and Gentiles. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. A number of other scriptures prove the point, and there is much more that can be said about this topic. We have literature that goes into it in much greater detail, But before we close, I want to give you one more doctrine found in original Christianity that is not found in most professing Christian churches. Number 3 is, Jesus and His Apostles kept the biblical holy days. Why is it that the days that Jesus kept are rejected and other days are substituted? Why do people observe a so-called Christian Holy Day that is named after a pagan goddess, otherwise known as Ishtar or Easter? What do bunny rabbits, brightly colored eggs, and new Easter bonnets have to do with the resurrection of Christ? Or what are the origins of Christmas celebrations? What does mistletoe and eggnog have to do with the birth of Christ? And what about that jolly rotund man with a white beard and bright red suit, that rides around the world in a reindeer-driven sleigh and sneaks into your house through your chimney to put presents under an evergreen tree decked with tinsel, globes, lights, and a star on top. Do you know? And do you care? Consider this remarkable quote from Erdman's, The Christian Church took over many pagan ideas and images, From sun worship, for example, came the celebration of Christ's birth on the 25th of December, the birthday of the sun. Saturnalia, the Roman winter festival of 17 to 21 of December, provided the merriment, gift giving, and candles typical of later Christmas holidays. Sun worship hung on in Roman Christianity, and Pope Leo I in the middle of the 5th century rebuked worshipers who turned round to bow to the sun before entering St. Peter's Basilica. Some pagan customs, which were later Christianized, for example, the use of candles, incense, and garlands, were at first avoided by the church because they symbolized paganism. These were not the days Christ and the apostles kept. Here are the days they kept, and a partial list of New Testament scriptures showing this Passover, unleavened bread, Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Last Great Day. Now let's contrast this with the scriptures that mention Christmas, Easter, Lent, Halloween. All Saints Day or the celebration of any other so-called Saints Day. Okay. Now it's true that you can find the term Easter in the old King James version of the Bible. That's in Acts the 12th chapter verse 4. But virtually all Bible scholars admit that it should be translated Passover. And it is equally true that we read of the birth of Jesus, but nowhere do we read of the annual celebration of His birth, and the traditional Christian story badly distorts the biblical account. The Encyclopedia Britannica reveals in its article on Christmas, As late as 245, that's 200 years after Christ, Origen repudiated the idea of keeping the birthday of Christ as if He were a King Pharaoh. While the book of Zechariah is found in what is called the Old Testament, the 14th chapter is messianic. It refers to the time in the future when Christ returns. It begins in verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. It goes on to describe a horrendous battle that will take place near Jerusalem, how Christ's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and on how the mountain will be split in two. Then in verse 9 it tells us, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Now this is clearly something that will take place in the future. And what will Christ do after his return? Will he command the world to keep his birthday or celebrate his resurrection with pagan symbols? Check it out in your own Bible. Notice it beginning in verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. We have very briefly looked at three doctrines that were taught and practiced by Jesus Christ and his apostles, doctrines which have been rejected by most of professing Christianity. Honestly, one must wonder why doesn't Christianity keep the law of God? What's wrong with keeping the same Sabbath day that Christ and his apostles kept rather than the day of the sun that Constantine commanded? What's wrong with keeping the same holy days that Christ and his apostles kept rather than pagan days disguised as Christian? The answer is found in the writings of the apostle Paul. Romans the 8th chapter and verse 7 because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. There is a natural human hostility toward God and His commandments, but in the book of Jude, the half-brother of Jesus warned those of His day who were drifting away from truth, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you'd like to get back to the faith that was once delivered, the faith of Jesus Christ and His Apostles, visit our website, which will be shown on the screen momentarily, to read or download our informative booklet, Restoring Original Christianity. And be sure to come back next time right here, when Richard Ames and I will continue sharing with you the teachings of Jesus Christ, the good news of the coming Kingdom of God, and the exciting end-time prophecies
1: and their meaning. See you next time! To learn more about today's topic, visit www.twcanada.org to read or order your free copy of Restoring Original Christianity. It examines and contrasts modern professing Christianity with the religious practices of Jesus Christ and the first century apostles. You can also order by calling us at 1-866-784-7895. Call one 1-866- 866 or by writing to us at Tomorrow's World PO Box 409 Mississauga, Ontario L5M 0P6 You will also receive a free subscription to Tomorrow's World magazine revealing God's principles for living an abundant and happy life while providing insight into current and future events. At our website you can also watch this and many more Tomorrow's World programs. Call 1-866-784-7895. Write or visit us online today. This program is a production of The Living Church of God.